Yeah, cheers, dicks. Yep, so another episode, episode three, this is Africa. As you can probably tell from the title, this is going to be me speaking to you about my experiences during one deployment to Kenya in 2019. Some of you guys can relate to it and understand where I'm coming from. Some of you, if you can't relate, hopefully, I'll articulate in such a way you can kind of almost imagine you were there. Nevertheless, hope you enjoy the show and let me know any feedback at the end. I've got a microphone now, a small little microphone that connects to my phone. So hopefully, the audio quality is better than what it would be without. If it is, and if it isn't, let me know uh, on Instagram, wherever, and just tell me that quality is A-OK. Also, obviously this episode is just me. There's no guest on this one, like the last one. So it's going to be me speaking, essentially, about myself, which, believe it or not, is actually a hard thing to do. And there's a reason why the podcast is called Cheers Dits. Now, for people that don't know what that is, Cheers Dits is uh, it's military slang for, well, dit is military slang for someone telling a story. So dit is slang for story. Um, so Cheers Dits is something you'd say to someone if they were telling you a story about themselves, you know, they're on exercise, they've had it harder than you. Um, they've done this, 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 and this, and obviously you've done nothing, you know, that kind of thing. And you'd reply, yeah, cheers, dits, because, yeah, we've heard it all before. We've all done stuff, that kind of thing. So that's where cheers, dits comes from, and it's rightly so named uh, correctly for this podcast. Anyway, getting into 2019. Towards the start of 2019, about February time, I was told I was going with a team of 12 of us, me included, to Kenya, my first time in Kenya. Little did I know that in 2019, I was going to end up going to Kenya three times. So for those of you that have been to Kenya, you'll understand, you know, what that feels like to go to Kenya and back three times or six times, including coming back as well, in one year. So that's quite a lot for one country. And I'd like to think that the majority of people in a military wouldn't do that much time in the country in one year. So, yes, I've been to Kenya a few times. Anyway, so going to Kenya initially for a 12-man team. Uh, Our job was essentially to support an exercise, which is being run over there. Exercises get run over there all the time. I believe it's once a year. Um, so it's a British British run exercise, obviously within Kenya. Now our task then was to help the KDF, so that's the Kenyan Defence Force, on this exercise. So we are to administrate them um, and help them along alongside the exercise, so they can join with the British guys and be included in the battle group, if you like, all the actions that get done alongside the exercise with us helping them. You know. We act as a liaison, so we're like the middleman between the KDF, the Kenyan Defence Force, and the Brits. So the head shed that are in charge of exercise, they'll talk to us. We'll then relay that down to the, the KDF. And when it comes to actually being on the exercise, we are in role, doing everything like normal, 
but we're also managing taking control of the KDF company that was uh, attached to us, or should I say, we were attached to them. So yeah, it's quite an interesting deployment. I wasn't part of a British battle group, uh, you know, as such. I mean, I was, but I wasn't embedded with, with the Brits doing everything that we would normally do. It was now just 12 of us and a company of, of Kenyans, KDF. So going over there then, obviously it's about a, I think it's a five hour, four to five hour flight. And the flights, the military flights, there's an interesting way of doing it. It's not like you go to Heathrow, you go to the check-in desk, your baggage goes in and you go for security and you kind of, you just, you wait, you go to your gate and you're done. There's a difference between military flights, right? So you get a bus, it's always early morning as well. And wherever you're based, you get a bus early morning and you drive this bus to a place called South Cerny. Now in South Cerny is kind of your check-in desk. That's where the bags are get checked in. And if you've got any um, like rifles or you know, you're taking communications equipment over as a bulk, you're not taking that individually. You've obviously got a massive van full of it. That also needs to go in as well and be accounted for uh, to get flown over. So we drive early morning to South Cerny. You're normally in there. Well, every time I've been there, it's always been about you know, three, four o'clock in the morning. I'm checking my bags in. Bags go in. Obviously, it's the same process. Don't have any you know, dodgy objects inside the bags. They all get scanned in. And then once they're scanned in, they'll get taken on a pretty much a baggage truck to Bryce Norton. Now, you've probably heard of Bryce Norton being the main place the RF used to fly in and out of. Uh, military flights so it's taken on a baggage truck to Bryce Norton South Cerny and Bryce Norton they're not too far away it's about a 15 20 minute drive if I remember correctly so there's still a little bit of a distance there so you stay in South Cerny for a good while until the buses are ready to collect you and then take you to Bryce Norton so the flight gets dealt with and all the baggage at South Cerny you then get taken to Bryce Norton and essentially at Bryce Norton, you're pretty much straight through and onto the onto the flight itself. There is a security, it's not it's not as big as Heathrow and Stansted and whatever else. There's maybe a couple of a uh, couple of rows that you place your bags into all the way through the uh, the scanners and and you're off. That's at Bryce Norton. So you go through a quick security check, nothing major. And you're pretty much on the flight from there. So you do a lot of your waiting at South Cerny. Obviously, you get in your flight with all the military guys, ran by the RAF, the air hostesses, if, if that's what you want to call them. Again, no RAF, so it's all military base. There's no civilians uh, working there or dealing with the flights. We then end up in Kenya. Obviously, depending on what time you get the flight, depends what time you get there. You then have to get a bus from to the airport to a place called Batak Rear. That's what I call it anyway. Batak Rear. So this is a place near Nairobi. That's where you fly into, just north of Nairobi. And you pretty much stay there for a night after a flight. And the next morning, you look to travel to a different location. But we'll quickly talk about Batak Rear. So on the way to Batak Rear, you have to go from, you have to go from one direction on the road to then go round and round about to go to back the other way because it's on one side of the road, it's on the other side from which you're travelling on. The key point to this is the roundabout. 
this roundabout from anyone that I've ever spoke to, and I still call it this to this day, is called the magic roundabout. Uh, it's weird why we call it, but there's reasons for it. It's your first kind of introduction to Kenya, essentially. And the roundabouts, it's not underground, but it's under a bridge. So you've got two large roads above it. So it's pretty much covered. In the center of this roundabout is a lot of homeless people. So there's poverty-stricken area. There's drugs, needles on the grounds. Uh, along the sides of the roundabouts, not in the center, but along the sides, there's like market stalls. But it just looks all run down. With the people, the people could be in various states. So I'm talking, you know, just literally passed out on the ground. They could be sleeping. They could just be off the head on drugs. You've generally got people crawling along the ground as well. And you've obviously got the, the usual walkers um, stumbling around. They look like they're drunk, essentially. So your first introduction to Kenya as such, when you're looking at this roundabout, as you go around it, it's just, it's just mental. Like it's just completely different to what you'd, uh, you'd see in the UK. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the first part. You then go around the roundabout, enter back rear, which is, it's on a, I believe it's a KDF base. It's a Kenyan base, essentially, and ours is kept at the rear of it. It's a little, tiny square uh, of, of land that we, we keep, essentially. We have a post office there, small post office, a swimming pool, which I've never used. That's more so for the, the people that stay there. You've got, obviously, permanent staff accommodation. The guys that stay there, there's a couple of blocks there for them. And then you've got the transit accommodation, the guys that come in, stay a night or two, and then leave. So that's large accommodation. You've also got, obviously, the cookhouse there, shower blocks, toilet blocks. Um, and that's pretty much it. You've got a small car park for vehicles in and out. Um, and essentially, apart from a little shop as well, that's it. So back rear, you go in, it's late at night, and there may be people staying there because that flight has just come in. They might be getting that flight on the way out, you know, because that flight's going to stay there overnight and they're not going back to the UK the next day. So there might be guys at back rear that are waiting for that flight. So as you can imagine, you've got a flight full of people now at back rear. It's late at night, you know, I'm talking let's say 11 o'clock, they're in bed and you're now just coming in, making noise and trying to find a bed. There's one room there that is quite literally got 200 beds. These are bunk beds all stacked on top of each other. It's 200 beds. I remember walking into this place, trying to find a bed space just to sleep for the night, just to literally crash. And I couldn't find any, and everyone's there trying to fight for a bed space. Uh, there's blokes trying to sleep and whatnot. So that was a bit of a nause, trying to find a place to stay. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting one. When you all get up in the morning as well, and there's like 200 people moving around, going to the same place. That can be a bit chaotic, all in one room as well. So imagine COVID times, which that was obviously just a year before. But imagine COVID times in there, that'd be interesting to say the least. So yes, stayed there for the night, didn't sleep much. I quite literally just threw a blanket over me on, on one of the mattresses, on the bunk beds and just went to sleep. Work on the next day, early morning, have breakfast, get a bus now from Batak Rear up north, so north of Kenya, 
to a place called Lab. Now, I forget the full name of it, but it's an airbase called Lab. You go to the airbase, and this is kind of now what you expect the uh, the British Army to be operating out of. This is this makes more sense. There's a lot more space here. It's a little bit more organised, and there's there's time and places for people to to operate in. So you go to back rear, and as you can imagine, there's everything you need there. Uh, sorry, not back rear. You go to lab, and there's everything you need there with tin huts essentially that you're staying in. Again, they are bunk beds. We were lucky to have a, a hut to ourselves, so for our team. So I pretty much had a bunk, so two beds to myself. So one, I don't want to put my kit on top, uh, vital kit that I need, you know, webbing, helmet, body armor will go on the top bunk just for ease of access. And then on the bottom bunks, obviously, where you stay, sleeping. So yeah, we got our hut to ourselves, which is nice and easy. And then we begin the process of RSOI which is essentially a package that you need to do prior to going into an exercise or going onto a new uh, new area or a new environment, such as Kenya, obviously going from a normal climate that we're used to in the UK to going to a hot climate. We have to do acclimatization, so a bit of PT in the mornings. It's not hardcore PT, it's nice and slow just to get us used to the heat and the temperatures there. And you also do a bit of training and understanding of how the exercise is going to run. So we do all that beforehand, maybe for about a week. And then after that, they'll start pushing people out and starting the exercise. Yeah, cheers, dicks. You want to know what's horrible? It's when you record a full segment and realise that your microphone died. So we didn't actually record it. So the new microphone I had died. Pretty much at the start of the last segment, which lasted about 25 minutes of me talking. So I've got to go through that again. So this will be fun for me. Hopefully fun for you as well. So we're starting the exercise phase now. So we begin our journey going even more north than what we are already um, to an area of which the exercise is. Now, this is about two hours from where we are currently stationed in lab. The way I got there was on the back of a Land Rover. So if you've ever been on a Land Rover Defender, it's quite literally just a bench. It's not a seat. It's a little bench in the back of it. And you sit on there, uncomfortable with anything, for two hours. It was me and someone else. So it was two of us in the back. Not a lot of legroom. So we ended up using our Land Rover all the way for a two-hour stint up north, and then set up a little base, a little base operations, if you like. So this is a training part of the exercise now. So we are helping to mentor and train our KDF brothers, if you like, that we've got. So we've got a KDF company of up to 50 people with us. We've got civilian contractors, local civilian contractors. There's about, I don't know, seven of them you've then got us the the 12 man team that we have so the civilian contractors they're there to essentially help us with defenses defenses from animals so they will set up a barbed wire circular perimeter around where we're staying which is what they did um that's pretty much all they did and they stayed with us for 
about five days or so, which we were in that one position for. We obviously need to look after them, give them rations, give them food. Um, sometimes we had uh, we, we managed to get some fresh food um, for those guys. So obviously we'd give them part of the food. We'd give them, you know, a solar shower, which is a bag. You'd fill it with water. It's got a nozzle on it. You leave it out in the sun. It gets hot. You hang it up high. Turn the nozzle on. Water comes out. You've got yourself a shower. We give them those, and we gave them uh, a tent that they could stay in. We didn't stay in tents. We stayed in mosquito nets. So a large mosquito net that you can get a camp cot inside of and your bags. That's what we stayed in. Um, so imagine the block of uh, 12 of those. And then there's a space in the center for the local solely contractors in a large tent. And the other side of the perimeter, you've got the KDF staying again in their tents that they've they've uh, taken with them. So they're all in, te- all in tents. We are in a mosquito net. Now, the first kind of animal that I came across, or animal part, should I say, was a giraffe skull. So we knew there was giraffes in the area because I'd seen, or we we managed to find this skull, which wasn't too far away from us. Um, quite a large skull as well. As in, people were taking pictures of it because it was something they'd not seen before. So I knew there were giraffes in the area. I didn't manage to see any. Some of the guys did, but personally I didn't. However, what I did see, and to this day is probably my most least favoured animal, and there's a reason for that later on, is the hyena. Now, during the evening, these come out when it's dark, and they'll come out in packs. So I'm talking five to ten of them, all sniggling, all laughing, and they'll be circling the perimeter, having a look at, you know, what's up for grabs. Now, at the end of the day, they're scavengers, so... If you pose a threat, they're not going to go for you. But if they feel you're not a threat, they may go for you. So, for example, someone who's sleeping, they may go for them or just be intrigued by what they're doing. But at the end of the day, they're looking for, for free food, for easy food. They're not going to go for a, a, someone that's uh, potentially going to cause them a threat. So every single night, these guys come out. Now, obviously, we're trying to sleep at the same time as we can hear these hyenas next to us. You can see them in the moonlight. They're large as well. I'd liken them to a, a German shepherd. So, so it's like a large dog. Excuse me. Um, so a large dog is the hyena. You don't realize how big they are until you actually see them. And when there's multiple of them, it's a little bit daunting, um, especially when you see their eyes in, in, the, uh, in the moonlight, in the darkness. So they're there every night. We were doing stags, so we'd have two people up throughout the night constantly just to ensure that our kit was secure, perimeter's not getting breached or whatever else. So we'd have two guys up on stag. So when I was up on stag, obviously I'm watching out for the the hyenas. I can see them. I'm watching them. I'm listening to them because they're constantly going off uh, in the hope (laughs) that they don't come into the perimeter and start looking around or make me even more nervous than I am. You know, it's the first time I've encountered hyenas. And uh, it was an interesting one, to say the least. I wouldn't want to encounter them again. Little did I know I would. But that's later on in the story. So, yeah, at this point, we're on the training phase for five days. So we'd go out during the day, do a bit of training with the KDF, and then come back in, uh, eat, sleep, repeat the process. 
So we did that for roughly a week. Towards the end of the week, we then moved locations. And then we set up another uh, another area of which we were now separate from the KDF. And what I found weird was the civilian contractors didn't follow us this time. So they were there for the first five days in one location and then just left. So now we're in a different location with just the 12 of us set up. And then 500, 600 meters away, we've got the KDF set up. Um, with no protection whatsoever. So we're out in the elements now. So anyway, we'd set up camp there and we'd continue the training with the KDF. This time we're seeing how they operate with, with an enemy threat, the enemy threat being us. You know, we'd, uh, we'd look to probe them. By probe, I mean, we'd look to enter their camp, you know, fire at them from a distance and see how they react from it. See if their security and sentries are doing what they're supposed to do. So I remember probing them a couple of times, so firing at them, seeing what they'd do a couple of times. Obviously, they knew it was us. Um, you know, we, we saw the reactions and whatnot. Once we did that, we'd then go back to where we were staying, eat some food, chew the fat, chill out, go sleep, do whatever, all right? Now, I remember during the daytime as well, we just attacked them. We came back, chilling out, talking about how they reacted, and maybe half an hour later after the attack, we started hearing gunfire and this gunfire was close and obviously we're all using blanks blank fire and we're not expecting to be fired at because all that's in the area is us and the kdf and we are you know after all we're trading and mentoring the kdf guys so there's gunfire going on uh, literally in and around us so initially our thoughts are this is sketchy what's going on here we all looked uh, looking at each other in shock. Um, little did we know that it wasn't our worst nightmare, which is obviously an actual shooting going on. It was the KDF blokes, about a section of them, 12 of them, that had come up from where they were staying and decided to attack where we were staying in, in retaliation, um, which is an interesting story. Like, the Brits amongst us, we would never do that. You know, DS, directing staff, if they're the ones training the mentor in us and, and conducting our exercise, you'd, you'd never just go against them and on your own back, like, yeah, let's go attack where they're staying. Um, obviously, they think differently. So we essentially got attacked by the KDF um, until our boss kind of screamed at them um, to the point they, they stopped and realised that that's not what we do here. Uh, and then obviously they went back and did their own thing from there on. But it's just a little example of how the KDF operate. Another example of this is, I'll jump a little bit forward, when we go into the tactical space, the exercise, so not the training part this time. They kind of didn't understand the difference between the training aspect we're in now and the tactical aspect. So when it got dark at night, obviously you want to keep light to a minimal, whereas these guys, they'd make a hole in the ground, set fire to it, so they make a large fire and then they'd cook what's called ugali. Ugali is like a Kenyan delicacy. And the way I can describe it, it's a dumpling, but just like pure flour. It's just made of water and the flour and heated up. That's it. And it's a delicacy for them. And that's all they could think about was where their next ugali was coming from. So they they cook that quite often until we tell them, you know, 
you can't be doing that. Um, as you can imagine, they will do their own thing. They're not going to listen to to us in, in their country. You know, if that's what they normally do, they're going to crack on and continue to do it. Um, so there's that. You just see fires everywhere. You know, the enemy's trying to work out. You know where people are. They can see fires and they can tell instantly. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the KDF guys. Nice. The enemy's being run by the Brits, so a British uh, company will most likely run the enemy segment. And just remember at this point as well, we're all what's called test up. So we've all got our, it's, it's like laser quest essentially, but you can't see the lasers, all infrared. We'd have sensors on our kit and equipment and the rifle that when we fire at someone, it hits their sensor, they'd either get injured or be killed. Likewise, same goes for us. So enemy and obviously friendly forces. The, the KDF also had this as well. Um, so when the enemy knew where we, where we were, they'd start firing. They'd hit the KDF. KDF would then, their little box would then say to them, you are dead or, you know, shot left leg and they just lie there. They're happy, you know, they, they just want to chill. So they get shot and they, they're happy just to chill there and lie there. Uh, likewise, you get mortar strikes as well. So it's it's not actual mortars. It will just come up in a little box that you is attached to your equipment. It will say mortars, 50 meters. And then it will either get further away, 60 meters, 70 meters, 100 meters, which is good. Or it will start getting closer to the point where it's mortars, 10 meters, 5 meters, 2 meters. And you start quite literally trying to dig into the ground, you know, thinking it's, it's realistic like that. Like, why is it getting closer? They know exactly where my position is. I wonder why, because of all the fires, so they know exactly where we are. So we're getting mortar striked a, a lot of the time. Um, but that was mainly in the defensive phase, which isn't yet. So still staying in this segment we're in now, the training area, or the training part of it. I remember four of us, including our team to IC, went up to a cliff face, which was next to where we were staying. We scaled this cliff face, and it was sketchy getting up. Uh, we separated from our two IC on the way up because he tried to find a different route. Uh, us boys managed to find a different different one up, a uh, different way up, which is ideal. But we separated for a good half hour. So we got to the top. We couldn't contact him. We'd send out a guy you know, every so often just to look in around the local area to see if we can find him up the top of the cliff. And nothing. The reason we were going up there was so we can get eyes on the Kenyan setup that they've got, see how they would they were doing during the day seeing what their routine was that's the reason for it but then we came across the 2IC our, our, our team 2IC as he came up towards us this was half hour 40 minutes later he's limping towards us and he starts shouting have you got an FFD now an FFD is a first field dressing it's a bandage essentially so we're obviously thinking to ourselves he's limping and he's asking for a bandage he's injured uh, instant thought is one, we're going to have to try and sort him out on top of this cliff face. And two, is he going to be okay to get down? Otherwise, we're going to struggle getting him off this. Uh, anyway, his injury was as, as such where he's, he's tried to reach a rock above his head and, and pull himself up, essentially. So imagine now he's on a rock face. He's trying to pull himself up and he's slipped. And as he slipped, he's landed on a rock between his legs, a large, sharp rock between his legs. Now, for us lads, obviously, we know what's between our legs. And he's 
landed directly on the crown jewels at some you know speed and velocity um so that must have severely winded him not only did it severely winded uh, wind him it didn't split his scrome his ball sack it punctured it so it punctured a hole into his into his scrotum of which we managed to glue there on the ground so he didn't have to go in this guy's hard as nails anyway so he didn't want to go in uh, when I say in, he didn't want to go back to the med centre to get sorted, get checked over. He was happy to stay out. So we glued it there and then on the ground once we got back down. Um, but until then, yeah, we literally used a bandage, wrapped it around his balls and around his waist, got him down. He climbed down himself. And uh, yeah, once we got to the bottom, cleaned it, glued it, done. Um, quite literally with a hole in the centre of his testicles. Hopefully he got it checked out later on, but to this day, I don't know, um, but that must have must have hurt him definitely. So we move from this location then, and we start moving into the tactical aspects of the exercise. Yeah, cheers, dicks. So the tactical aspect of the exercise. Now this is where we still take a step back from the KDF. We're not so much training and mentoring now we are more so alongside and, and helping lead them to the right places um, and doing the right things essentially but we'd still take a back seat and let their commanders do it we just help them along the way so a lot of what we were doing was night patrols so we'd conduct operations at night and then during the day you know we'd rest receive orders go again the following night i remember one night patrol so the terrain's obviously hard in the sense that it's undulating one minute you're you're relatively flat next minute you're on a cliff face uh, i say you know on a ridge line walking along it either side of you is a is a large drop off um so luckily for us we had one of our guys leading the patrol this patrol is 50 people in company of the KDF and you've got obviously 12 of us so it's a large patrol of people uh, our recce guy was leading because um, he's good at map reading good at route selection so we, we let him lead the whole, the whole thing uh, which was ideal and us obviously stopping off well, in fact firstly on the route when you're navigating the terrain you'll come across what's called bastard bushes now, the reason they're called bastard bushes, and these things are, they're like form bushes. The reason they're called bastard bushes is because every time you, you come across them, you'll, they'll either pick your hat off, as in if you've got a soft hat on, a uh, little sun hat, they'll either take that off you and keep it in the tree, or they'll prick you like a fawn. And every time they do that, the individual more likely, or more likely will say, you bastard. That's what they're called, called bastard bushes. So there's a lot of them to navigate through. So you're going through those. Obviously the terrain as well. Remember we stopped off on one location in quite an open area. And then we'd get all the, 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 the we'd, we'd sort our defensive perimeter out. So we'd have the KDF, the Kenyans in a circle formation, all laid down, looking outwards. And then we'd have us in the center, you know, thinking about the next move essentially. And I remember, and this, this to this day, 
remembering it, it went through me, right? So when someone screams in so much terror and, you know, when, when someone's serious to the point where someone's screaming so loud and it's, it's just so mysterious and dark because you don't know where it's come from or why it's happened, and it just goes through you and shocks you to the core, right? Well, this happened, right? One of the Kenyans, the, the Kenyan guy's laying down in the defensive room. He started, he, he just screamed, let out a massive scream, right? And this was behind me at this point. So I turned around with the other guys and was looking towards his location of where this scream came from. Obviously, it's dark. It's an open area, but we're surrounded by, you know, bushes and whatever else. So my initial thought was there's animals over there and they're coming towards us, maybe even running towards us. Worst thought was lions. But having been to Kenya a few times now, I realized that lions are quite lazy uh, the other thought was elephants you know elephants is probably the worst one worse out of the two to come across that was my first initial thought was holy shit we've got big naughty animals coming towards us uh, what do we do now because we've only got blank ammunition you know we can try and scare them off yeah certainly but apart from that we we ain't gonna do much so it turns out, well, in fact, I'm going to go back slightly. So he started screaming. And as he screamed, he got up and ran towards us, the centre. But as he did that, 10 guys to the left of him and 10 guys to the right of him, so about 20 people now, all got up, started screaming in their own different ways and started running towards us in the centre. So now I'm turning around. I'm looking at 20 people all screaming, running towards me. So at this point, I'm, I'm thinking the worst. I'm thinking, what's going on here? We are fucked. Whatever it is, we can't stop it. So they all ran towards us and stopped in the centre, thinking that we were going to protect them from whatever was coming, uh, which obviously wasn't a thing. Turns out there was no animals there, no big, large animals. The guy that initially screamed thought he got bit by a snake. And upon further inspection, there was no bite marks or anything. So he didn't get bit by a snake. He must have rolled onto something that was relatively sharp. And his initial reaction was, oh no, that's a snake that's bit me. I'm going to scream and run. <laughs> so, yeah, turns out all of that commotion for nothing. Late at night, and they start screaming and running towards you. That's not a sight you, you want to see or be a part of. Um, so that was an interesting part on, on, on that patrol. Um, so obviously we'd conduct the patrols at night and then actions during the, the morning times and then we'd go on and, and sleep during the day so we do a patrol in the morning I don't know if it was that morning or a different one but I remember attacking a little village complex with our Kenyan counterparts we led them into this attack uh, we completed it, did all that good stuff and whatever else, we then were waiting for our next move out. So waiting for our next orders, essentially. We were told to stay put there for a few hours. So obviously we're hanging out now in a sense that we've not slept. We've been walking throughout the night. It's quite far distances. We've waited for the, the attack to go ahead. We've then attacked and now we're all tired. We just want to relax and chill. So we end up sleeping in the sun. Now, the Kenyan sun 
when I tell you it's it's vicious, right? So I slept in the sun and I was probably out for a good few hours along with the people beside me. And when I woke up, my, my face was tingling, like especially my lips, they were tingling and a bit numb. And I had no idea why they were like this. And it was like that for about 24 hours to 48 hours. And I just thought that, you know, maybe it was was the sun affecting it. But, you know, I'll be, I'll be right. You know, I'll be fine. After 48 hours, my lips started to, like, blister. And they looked horrendous. I think I got, I got called Freddy Krueger. And there was another joke with that. Do you know when the mortars were coming in? I spoke about earlier, the mortars. When the mortars were coming in on our defensive phase a little bit later on, and there's me with the blistered lips. They were like, yeah, the mortars have got you. Uh, you're an actual casualty. You need to go. Obviously, it's a joke because it looked like I've been smacked in the face by a mortar or looked like Freddy Krueger, one of them. So, yeah, I had blistered lips. And then eventually the blisters, they went, uh, they went white afterwards. I think that was just the, the, re the recovery process on the body's part. So yeah, I'm now conducting the exercise with burnt lips because I laid out in the sun and my face wasn't burnt, which is weird enough. My face was fine, just my lips were burnt. The only part of my body that was burnt was my lips. And I tell you now, you do not want your lips to burn because it's not exactly pleasant and it's quite painful. So I'm spending a good quarter to half of this exercise or quarter to a third of this exercise with burnt lips, blistered and burnt lips. So moving on from the tactical kind of phase, uh, now where we're conducting the actions during the morning, patrolling at night, we then move on to the defensive phase. So the defensive phase is there's loads of trench positions, and I'm pretty sure we were at the rear of the trenches. So the KDF, they were staying in the trenches, and we were at the very rear of, of where they were staying. Me and the two IC, the team two IC, just decided to like we, we branch off to the side, as we as as we initially got there. So you know we weren't going to stay in a trench. We were just going to monitor and see how they did. So we push ourselves off to the side, let them stay in the trench. Now I remember him, you know, leaving me at one point. He said, you know, I'm just going to go check on the uh, check on the guys, make sure they're digging the trenches well, make sure they're in routine, whatever else. Uh, I said, yeah, happy, cool. I'm gonna get in my DOS bag because it was that at that time to get my head down so I got my DOS bag I'm by myself in the Kenyan wilderness with no protection from local civilians no barbed wire or anything I'm just literally laying in my DOS bag in the Kenyan wilderness near a water watering hole a water hole watering hole I think that's how it's pronounced watering hole now, a watering hole is a perfect place for the animals to gather because it's where they're going to get water. Now, this, this was about 400 metres away, 500 metres away, but we were pretty much on a passing route through for the animals. And I remember just about to get my head down and all I could hear was, was running. You know, like when you're hearing, you know, feet running on the ground towards you, you know, that's all I could hear. No other sounds, just running, 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 getting closer. And I got out of my DOS bag as fast as I possibly could. I never got out that fast in my life just to try and face whatever was coming towards me. 
again, thinking it was a lion because prior to this, you could hear them in the background. You could hear them doing their rules, you know, speaking to each other's. And on the radios as well, they were saying there's a pride alliance, a pride being, you know, a good five, six lions cutting around our area. So my first initial thought was, I'm about to get ran at by a lion, which obviously is, is not ideal for me. So I get up as quick as I can, and I'm stood there now face to face with just a little small gauze bush in between us. Uh, there stands a hyena. Now, this hyena was just staring at me. So it was just moving from side to side, sizing me up, essentially just staring at me until, you know, I try and pose a threat to it, you know, make some sounds, you know, you know push my fist in the air or whatever, rub my hands up in the air just to make sure it, it would leave. And after a few seconds, it did. But the worry was still there, being face to face with a hyena, a large dog, a wild animal, uh, being very, very close to it uh, in, the, in the hope that it, it doesn't hurt me. The two IC came back later on, and I told him that instant. And, um, you know, he was like, you know, he, he started laughing, as you, as you probably would. But I tell you now, from that, from that time onwards, from that little interaction with a hyena, I slept in my right hand with a Leatherman. That's a multi-tool. I slept with that. And then I slept with a head torch in my left hand. So if anything happened, I've got a torch to shine a light at them, hopefully to scare them off. And I've got my Leatherman with a knife on the side of it in case I needed to stab something, you know, to try and protect myself, essentially. So I'd sleep with both those items in my hand from now onwards. Now, it got to the point where me and me and him both got a DOS, but in the same place, we stayed in the same place, but now they've got a bit of strength in numbers. And this isn't the first time that I say strength in numbers uh, during this, this phase. So I'm, I'm a little bit more secure with him, knowing if something came towards us, there's two of us now. And we both get our DOS bags, or I think I'm in my DOS bag, and he's about to get in his, he's just setting his bed up. And again, Summit came running towards us. This time we were a little bit more prepared because um, obviously he was awake and he was, you know, just had his rollman out, just about to get his DOS bag out. So he was good to go. Again, I got up as quick as I can, started facing this threat. And again, a couple of hyenas are there. At this point, we, we decide to ourselves that we are quite literally in the route towards where hyenas are moving around. We thought we were directly in the way of where they were going, so we decided to move. At that point, like quite literally, once the hyenas had gone, we packed up. We're like, "Yeah, fuck this, we're moving." So we moved closer to where our guys were staying, the Brits, uh, our our team. So we had a couple of guys. Well, I say that we were all spread out, so we were in twos and threes, spread out across um, about you know I'd say five hundred meters away from each other. Um, as as you go forward so we moved to an area where there were two or more of our guys and they were in a shell scrape not the trench part they were just in a shell scrape towards the rear of it shell scrape is like a the americans call it like a foxhole little dug in hole in the ground they stay in we went towards our guys there um and i could see 
one of the guys had his mozzie net up just outside um, and he was just chilling in there. We said, you know, how are you doing? What's, what's going on? And we, we told him about the hyena instance. And he said, yeah, the hyenas are circling us as well. So the hyenas were everywhere on this defensive phase. And as we were speaking to him, you could see him running around um, where we were, sort of sizing us up and a look. We stayed in this location for a few days now. So quite literally in this hole with four of us. Again, strength in numbers. So there's there's more, more of us now, knowing that hyenas there are there on a daily basis. Knowing there's lions as well, because you can quite literally hear them behind you. Knowing there's a watering hole. Um, so we had elephants and giraffes pass through us. For our locate, just four of us, about 600 metres, they were passing through. So imagine now being sat in a trench or a hole, and you've got elephants, giraffes, hyenas, lions, all in and around, within... I'd say within an 800 meter radius of where you are. So uh, that was an interesting place to be. To the right of us, um, about, again, 800 meters, so you can see it in the, the near distance, there was a little shepherd's hut and one shepherd and he had loads of zebra. Um, and just to the left-hand side of that was like a cliff face. During the evenings, you can hear loads of commotion on the cliff face. There's probably the baboons because they like staying up there. Um, and you can also hear loads of commotions with the, the zebras. So you can only assume that hyenas are trying to go for these zebra, which are pretty much defenseless. Um, every single night as well, multiple times throughout the night, because we'd be awake as well on, on stag or just awake of the hyenas. We'd look over and see lights. Uh, where the shepherd would come out and try and protect the zebras. Obviously, he's doing that multiple times during the evening. So I feel sorry for that guy trying to protect his his animal. I'm assuming they're his animals anyway, or he's looking after them. So we've got that to our right-hand side. We've got to our quarter left is the watering hole, about 800 metres away. And obviously, in front of us are the trenches where the Kenyans are staying. So we've got a lot of animal activity uh, between us with, again, having been face-to-face -face with hyenas, elephants in the near distance, giraffes in the near distance, lions. I didn't see, but you could hear them. And on the radios, like I said, they were telling us that they were, they were cutting around. There was one evening where the Kenyans started firing on one side of the trenches. They started firing, obviously, blanks and... There was no one around, so we had to go over there and ask them, you know, why are you firing? They then said there was a lion. So they'd seen a lion. They got scared, as you probably would, and they started firing the blanks here, just hope, hope it would run away. Well, apparently it did. I don't know to this day. They could have been lying, um, but supposedly there was a, a lion in front of where they were staying. So you're in and amongst the animals. I remember driving back. Or going in front of the defensive phase, I had a little uh, task to do. So I had to drive back to a, a Liga where other vehicles were. And I stayed there the night. And a Liga is essentially a couple of vehicles in, in lines. So they could block a vehicles. And I'm staying by the side of one vehicle. Again, just dust bag out, sleep by the, sleep by the wheel. And I, I'm, I'm getting woken up by the sounds of hyenas again. I literally turn around, I look up. 
and I can see the hyenas circling again where we were, nice and close. Um, it's it's just it's just not a nice thing to see when you're trying to sleep. So, like I said before, I I got up, I went to one of the other guys that I knew that was staying close to me by another vehicle, sat beside him, got him a dust bag, and the only thing I said to him, which he was probably half asleep at this point as well, was strength in numbers, yeah. And then went to sleep just so I could be with another person um, in the hope that if anything went wrong, <laughs> there's two of us, not one of us. Um, so I ended up moving. It was always a case of strength in numbers, strength in numbers, strength in numbers. So now we are finishing the defensive phase and we're going on to the final part of the exercise. Now, the final part of the exercise is. Uh, was a quite a long patrol during the night into a final attack in the in the morning time on a village location of which you'd always you'll always see it's always night move morning attack or action whatever it may be and this night patrol this night move consisted of a lot of a lot of uh, parts of the exercise a lot of you know companies sections platoons whatever moving across this this mountain face essentially it's called the dragon's back if you've ever been to kenya you understand what the dragon's back is and it's a sketchy little place to maneuver yourself especially at night and i knew it was sketchy before i even got up there because all you could see during the evening was helicopters now these helicopters were coming in to the Dragon's Back location and airlifting blokes that had been injured on it. They were falling down, breaking legs, breaking ankles, uh, or just, you know, maybe heat injury, whatever. Because um, believe it or not, you can still get heat injury at night. So yeah, there's there's various reasons why helicopters are now coming in and airlifting guys off of this mountain range. Um, I say mountain range, it's probably more like a hill range. You know, same kind of concept. Large terrain. So I knew from then, I was like, this is going to be a, an interesting one. Got to look after myself when I go up here. All was fine. All of our guys were, were all good. Even the Kenyans were, were fine. So we, we had no dramas, but a few of the other companies did uh, during. But we'd go on, complete our final attack. Uh, all is well. And then we'd end up back to lab which was the the airbase which we were staying at outside of lab is or once once you finish your exercise you've you've handed all your vehicles in or you can equipment or whatever else you kind of get a couple of days to wait and chill before you go back to batik rear waiting for your flight out so with those couple of days you know you, you do what you need to do and you can go outside of the camp and go to the local restaurant uh, the supermarket, I say supermarket, the the shopping centre, which isn't good, really. It's not like ours. And you can also see the Curio, I think I'm pronouncing that right, Curio shops, which are literally just outside the gate. Now, these are shops set up by people, little wooden shacks, and they're going sh- to sell you um, little memorable items, little souvenirs. That's like bracelets or carvings of animals. And they'll do they'll do um, personalized ones as well. So you know you'd have a look at those, get something for your family, 
it's something for yourself to remember you experience by uh, and yeah they're actually good shops but every time you go in the shop the person who runs it will pull out a notebook and pen and say yeah yeah what do you want what do you want I'd, i'll do you this and they'll write down prices i don't know why they do it but every single one of them does it they'll say yeah i'll do you this price and you say oh no no, no i can't do that and then they'd you try and bargain them down because there's those set prices there they're just trying to get the best what they can do um and you know, you try and waggle them down to as best you can or best as you feel comfortable paying. But I remember going to these curio shops and a guy, a Kenyan guy, came up to us and said, he quite literally said to us, I am your bodyguard now. And we're thinking, what, what do you mean you're, you're a bodyguard now? And uh, this guy's, I think he's known for doing that from what I hear. But he's either, he's, he's either drunk or he's on drugs. It's one of them. Um, he's like, yeah, I'm your bodyguard now. So he's trying to protect us from the guys coming out of the curio shops trying to bring us in to sell our stuff. Um, obviously, he wants money in exchange for his services. But he follow up, follow us uh, all around these these shops. Um, he was no bodyguard at all. You know, we're still getting ushered in shops, trying to get uh, whistled in and whatever else. Um, eventually, we got obviously close to the camp gate. And he's like, you know, bodyguard, good, money now. And we're like, no. And obviously walk straight into the camp gate, which he can't do anything, can't follow us. That's it. He's just trying his luck, isn't he? But you'll get a lot of, lot of them like that. You know, the curio shops, the owners of it will run out of the shop and they'll say, some of them will say like explicit terms to you. Um, I won't say too much on the podcast about what, what they say, but They'll certainly be calling your names. You you wouldn't be able to get away with in England, for example, to try and get you in. Obviously, it's it's, it's okay over there to them. Um, but they'll try and get you into these shops, try and sell you as much as they can. So we went to, after getting the curio shops, we then obviously got told our time to go back to camp. To, uh, when I say camp, I mean Batik Rhea. You know, our flight's due in the next day or so, 24 hours. So we go back to back rear. And as we went there, you know, we stay there one day, flights tomorrow. As we did that, I remember there was a commotion happening in South Sudan. You know, it was kicking off there. So it was a no-fly zone. So our flight, our RAF flight got cancelled because they couldn't fly over South Sudan. But the weird thing is that civilian flights were running as normal. But for some reason, I don't know why, the RAF flight could not fly to our location. You know, I think to myself, like, why couldn't you go round South Sudan? You know, surely you'd have to go all the way over it. Can you go round? I, I, I don't know. But there's reasons why they, they, they couldn't fly. So we ended up waiting in back rear. I've described back rear to you. It's not a place you'd really want to wait for too long. But we're there for a good four or five days now you know, waiting for our flight details, you know, are we going to fly out of here or not? Now we've been delayed, you know, a few days to the point where it's like, yeah, we have no idea what's happening with you. You're all going back up to, to lab the airbase. So we traveled another two hours up north to the airbase. Again, having no idea when our flight is and we have nothing really to do there. Uh, with everyone trying to get out of the country back home. 
quite literally, not long after we got to lab, we were told, yeah, you've got civilian flights. Here's your list of priorities. We went to the cookhouse where they had the, the flight manifest of who's on what flight. And we were due to fly on, it was either the, I think it was the second flight out, which was due the next day. So we were quite literally on the bus, or off the bus, I say, off the bus at lab, to go back on the bus, to then go to back rear, stay there again, ready for a civilian flight the next day. Now, the difference with a civilian flight and a military flight is we had certain kit and equipment that we can take on a military flight. I'm talking like magazines, um, med kit, for example. We could take that on a military flight, but you can't take it on a civilian flight. So we had to leave all of our kit in bags in random, I say random places, we had to try and figure out ways to leave this in Kenya in the hope that it's going to find its way back to us. Um, and we have to turn that around like quickly to try and get rid of this kit to get on a civilian flight to um, to get us out of there. We had to take our own radio equipment with us as well. And the radio equipment we use is, is it's serialized kit. So what that means is like it, need, it needs to stay with you and it's protected. You know, you don't be, don't go losing the uh, the comms equipment. So some of us got on a flight. We were on different flights, bear in mind. Some of us got a flight through, it was Switzerland, which is fine. Some of the guys got a flight through, I believe it was. It's a bad day when your second microphone dies, isn't it? So that's two microphones dead. So now I'm back to the old trusty phone. Uh, anyway, just to, to finalise the story, essentially. Some of the guys went through Dubai and they're obviously a lot more sceptical to what this comms equipment is. So they were pulled to the side, put through, uh, not interrogation, but you know when people are in questioning you, trying to ask what this kit and equipment is, and then trying to explain to them what it actually does, because they're baffled by it. So they had a few issues getting through Dubai, whereas us getting through Switzerland was, was fine. So it was a noise getting back to the UK, because we're having to give our kit away, some of it, and leave it there in the hope it finds its way back. And we also obviously had, I say we, some of the team had dramas getting through the airports during our transition flight from Kenya to the UK. But nevertheless, got back home. Uh, the whole trip was about, I want to say, two months. I was out there for about two months, um, give or take. A majority of that was on the exercise in the different parts. And obviously you've got a week or two either side of that, which is where you're, you're waiting for either the flight, which we were. It pretty much came to about a week. Um, and obviously you've got your RSOI the week before you start doing anything. So you're just chilling for those kind of weeks. So yeah, two months out. First time in Kenya. Was an eventful one. Uh, with a lot to uh, to speak about. And I've kind of scratched the surface there with what I spoke about today. Hopefully you've enjoyed kind of listening to the, the experiences. And if you've been to Kenya, I'm sure you can relate to some of the stuff I've mentioned here. Keep up to date on Instagram as I look to gather thoughts and feelings on this podcast and the next. And to see what subject we, we should speak about. On the next one, whether that's getting a guest on or 
you know, talking about business, again, military stories, more of which, or talking airsoft world, whatever it may be, um, let me know on Instagram. Other than that, hopefully you enjoyed the show. Um, I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Yeah, cheers, dicks.